that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. You don't often hear that on television, do you, from the, the television preachers? Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father of mercy, this passage is here to correct our faulty thinking, to transform our sub-Christian affections, and to redirect our rebellious wills for the sake of Christ and his gospel. We pray that your spirit would do just that in our hearts today. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. This month in ESPN, the magazine, there was an article published, When Winter Never Ends by Wright Thompson. It was a feature article on Ichiro Suzuki, who is a Major League Baseball player, but is from Japan. In fact, he will be in the Hall of Fame in time. And he's now 44 years old, and he's seeking to maintain his career. At the time of the writing, he was in Kobe, Japan, his home, hometown. His wife was in Seattle, where their home is. And the reason they're apart is he is seeking to focus without distraction in order to preserve his, his career. The article says that Ichiro has methodically stripped away everything from his life that is not baseball. Let me say that again. He has methodically stripped away everything from his life that is not baseball. And that's not new. It began in third grade when his father introduced him to baseball. Starting in third grade, for 365 days a year, every year, Ichiro Suzuki swings at somewhere between 250 to 300 baseballs off a pitching machine, rain, snow, sleet, or shine. And since then, the article says he has literally suffered, that's the word that was used, to be great. He has suffered to be great, often waking up at 1 a.m. and swinging his baseball bat in the dark from 1 to 4 in the morning. He has played with bleeding ulcers against the counsel of the doctors. Suzuki, like many in Japanese culture, believes that suffering reveals the way, the path to greatness. Ichiro Suzuki is seeking to remain worthy. And he's willing to suffer to do that. For Suzuki to live is baseball. 
Now, we saw last time that every single person on the planet fills in that blank with something. To live is fill in the blank. And whatever you put in that blank is your functional Messiah, is your functional God. No matter what you profess, no matter what you confess, what you would put in that blank is your functional Messiah. To live is career. To to live is your financial portfolio. To live is vacation. To live is cars, hobbies, relationships, popularity, hedonistic pleasure. Whatever you look to for your happiness and your joy and your significance and your status and your identity goes in that blank and is your functional Messiah. For the Apostle Paul to live is Christ. Which means he's never a slave to his circumstances nor to the people around him. In fact, he is a slave But as we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, he is a slave to Jesus Christ, which means Christ is his Lord, Christ is his master, Christ is his king, Christ sets his agenda for his entire life. In fact, when you consider what Paul means when he says to live as Christ, you you could look at the verse 26 verses and reflect on what he means by that. In chapter 1, verse 1, to live as Christ, he says, I'm a slave to Christ. It's to have a biblical view of um, of other believers. In verse 1, he says, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when you have a biblical view of other believers, it's going to affect the way you think about them. It's going to affect the way you interact with them. In verse 3, it's to be a grateful person. It's to have a heart of gratitude. In verse 4, it's to to live in remembrance of the people of God. The people of God are on your mind. You're burdened for them. In verse 5, it's to be a partner of the gospel with other believers. In verse 7, it is to be a partaker of grace. In verse 8, it is to have the life of Christ live through you so that you can actually say, I yearn with you with the very affections of Jesus Christ. In verses 9 to 11, is to live as a prayer warrior for the church and to be concerned with the spiritual growth of other believers. In verses 12 to 18, it is to see your circumstances, even if it means you're in prison, through the prism of the gospel. It's in verse 20, it's to have as your first desire to honor Jesus Christ. And then you could consider the fact that it means to be willing to suffer for the gospel to the point of chains and even to the point of death. That's verses 1 to 26 in a nutshell. That's what it means to live is Christ. And the Apostle Paul wants that for his readers. He wants that for the Philippians, and he wants that for the people of Fisherville. In chapter 3, verse 17, he will say, join in imitating me. Like Ichiro Suzuki, Paul had methodically stripped away everything from his life, but not for baseball. 
for Christ's sake. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't talk about other things. That didn't mean that he didn't enjoy other things and do other things. It just meant that he experienced all of these things through the reference point of Jesus Christ. Even his chains. And that's why he was able to rejoice in his chains. Because he recognized that even in his imprisonment, God was using it to spread the gospel to places that would have never heard the gospel otherwise. The Apostle Paul knows that Jesus is the reason for which we live. He'll say that in Colossians 1. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And for the believer, he knows that Christ is our life. Colossians 3 verse 4. And to the degree a believer understands that. Christ is my life the believer will flourish. And that's what Paul longs for, for every believer. Now, he's going to deal with their issues in time. He's going to start dealing with those issues in chapter 2. He's going to get in our business. But the first thing he wants us to understand is what it means to have Christ as our life. Because until we understand that, any kind of corrective activity from Paul is just a rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic. And so here in chapter 1, he is dealing with the issue. What does it mean that Christ is your life? And the first thing we see in verses 27 and 28, he gives you some criteria. Christ is your life if you stand firm and you strive for the sake of the gospel. In other words, that's what describes you. It's what characterizes you. Notice in verse 27. This is one of those verses that you need to memorize. Wouldn't hurt you to memorize the entire book of Philippians, but this is one of those verses you just need to memorize. He says, only let your manner of life. He's been describing his manner of life for 26 verses. Now, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of you. Think about that. I may hear of you. Do you know why he would hear of them? Because if you are living a life worthy of the gospel, it puts you in rare air. It puts you in rare air. He says, so whether I come or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, Striving side by side for the sake, for the faith of the gospel. What an appropriate verse on Palm Sunday. Of course, Palm Sunday is the day we celebrate when Christ came into Jerusalem. And he came there for one reason. To die. He came to die as our substitute. And we demonstrate our discipleship under the lordship of Christ, by dying to ourselves for the sake of Christ, taking up our own crosses. That's essentially what Paul is saying here in verse 27. 27 is true when verse 21 is true of you. To live is Christ. 
That is, just as Paul has conducted himself in a way that is worthy of the gospel, he is calling the believers in Philippi and the believers in Fisherville and the believers everywhere throughout church history to the same manner of life. This is one of the highest callings in all of Scripture. But what does it mean? Well, let's begin with what it doesn't mean. Paul isn't saying you can actually become worthy of the gospel. He isn't saying that you actually can be worthy of God's favor in and of yourself. That's what Ichiro thinks. He thinks that he can can attain favor and worth and maintain it by his performance. That's every other religion in the world, but it's not Christianity. Indeed, that's the very point of the gospel. You can't earn favor or worth with God. But Jesus Christ came as our substitute. And he lived as our substitute, as the favored one of God. The only one in whom it's ever been said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ was the well-pleasing and is the well-pleasing son. And then the well-pleasing son went to the cross and he took the wrath of God for our unworthiness. And God received the payment because he raised him from the dead. All right? So it cannot mean here that we can actually be worthy of the gospel. Paul is saying essentially by the gospel that the only worthy one before God has acted in our place. That's the gospel. The only worthy one has acted as our substitute. And Paul says, if you get that, if that sinks in, then your response will be to act in a manner that corresponds to what God has done for you in Christ with love and gratitude and commitment, conviction, Now, if you were to translate this more literally, and many of you have footnotes in your Bible so that you can see I'm not making this up. If you were to translate this more literally, you could translate this this way. Only let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, behind the translation here, let your manner of life, there in the ESV is a single verb. It's one verb, one word. And its root is where we get the word citizen. Citizen. So Paul is calling them to maintain the kind of life that befits them as citizens. But not citizens of Rome. He will use that root for another word in chapter 3 when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul is speaking about a different kind of citizenship than Roman citizenship. This is a citizenship where Caesar isn't Lord. God in Christ is Lord. Now understand... The Philippians, that is the people of Philippi, not just the church here, 
the, the, the people of Philippi in Macedonia prided themselves in the fact that their city was a Roman colony. Now, unlike the United States, now I don't know if you're aware of this, but on July the 9th of this year, we will be celebrating the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which we adopted in 1868, where every person born in United States territory is a citizen of the United States. That's not how it was in the Roman Empire. In Rome, citizenship was an honor reserved for certain elites. So it's very likely that not everyone in Philippi would have been a citizen of Rome. But as a city, politically speaking, the Philippians were very committed to Rome. The reason we know that is they have these temples there that were dedicated to the Caesars. They were committed to Caesar, which meant first allegiance, no matter what your religion was, was to Caesar. Kaiser, Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. And all other lords are subordinate to Caesar. If you didn't confess that, it would put you in a dangerous way. And that makes sense of why when Paul comes to Philippi in Acts 16 and begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that there's one Lord, there's one king, all hell broke loose. He got beat. He and Silas beat almost to the point of death. And then they were put into a Roman prison. And when he left, the opposition didn't go away. Because he left a group of believers in his path. And the opposition now turned towards them. So Paul is using the language of citizenship to these believers because he is thinking in terms of ultimate citizenship, citizenship in heaven. And this was so important for this group so they could remember, I may not be a citizen of Rome, or I may be a citizen of Rome, but Caesar is not my Lord. Caesar is not my king. Jesus is my king. Paul wants them to represent the gospel in Philippi, no matter how difficult it may be. And a test of this faithfulness to the gospel is when no one's watching. Notice what he says. So whether I come or am absent. Now, what a test of gospel integrity. Not that we have apostles today, but put someone else in that line. So whether... Your spouse is watching or not watching. Whether your parents, young people, are watching, are present, or not watching, and are not present. Whether your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, your deacons, your elders are present are not present, watching or not watching, you're standing firm and you're striving for the faith of the gospel. More specifically, 
Paul says here it means standing and striving. And the emphasis here in verse 27 is unity. Now that surprises me. It really does. Because if I were to admonish you to to conform your life to the gospel, I would begin with holiness or righteousness. Those are absolutely on Paul's radar screens for sure. But the first thing he alludes to is not holiness or righteousness. It's unity. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Well, we've seen the importance of unity. In a world divided, a world alienated, a unified body signals that Christ has been raised from the dead and brought reconciliation. All right? And by the way... If unity is the first mark of a person who is walking worthy of the gospel, that tells me if you're a churchless Christian, which is a, that, that, that really a word, a phrase that does not exist in the New Testament, it's an oxymoron. You can't obey this verse. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to be a churchless Christian and obey verse 27, which is one of the high calls of the Christian. This requires a body. This requires a church to obey. It requires you to be immersed in body life to obey verse 27, which is essentially Christianity 101. So don't think you can invent your own version of the Christian life and be within the will of God. Now, Paul says here there are four elements of this unity. Let's just walk through these real quickly. First of all, unity of the Spirit. Notice, standing firm in one spirit. It is likely that your translation has a small s spirit. Which means the translators are taking that to mean your own personal, inner, immaterial self. But I take another translation or interpretation here. With many others, I believe this is referring to the Holy Spirit. The word is pneuma, which can be either your inner man, your immaterial self, or it can mean the third person of the, of the, the triune Godhead. I believe this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you why. Paul uses the word pneuma two other times in Philippians, verse 19 of chapter 1 and chapter 3, verse 3. In both of those other places, it clearly is referring to the Holy Spirit. There are three other places in Paul's writings where that construction, one spirit, is used. In all three of those other places, it's clearly referring to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Ephesians 2, 18, and Ephesians 4, verse 1. Then in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Philippians, he says to stand firm in the Lord. And we know the Lord is the Spirit, the third person of the Lord, the Godhead. And so I believe he's referring here to the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in one spirit. That is, what he is calling you to is a supernatural capacity. 
but something you can do because the Spirit is omnipotent and the Spirit has come to glorify the Son in your life. The second aspect of this unity is unity of mind. Notice he says, with one mind. Now, every member of a church has an idea of the way things should be in a church. The style of worship, the kind of preaching, the kind of Sunday school classes, the kind of vision and direction. All of these things, every member has a, an opinion. And you can destroy a church when every opinion is honored. You can't honor every opinion. Paul has already prayed that the believers would be able to prove what is most excellent. And so here, I think he's referring to a church that has one mind on the ultimate things and on the direction of the church. And where does that direction come? It, not from fallen man's opinion or preferences. It comes from the one's spirit, the one spirit's word, the word of the spirit. A church that is not informed by the word of the spirit will become a community center. But not a great commission organism. The third aspect of this unity is unity of action. Notice he says striving side by side. If you're not involved in the life of the church, you've already disobeyed. This believers striving side by side. What that tells me is every believer here has spiritual gifts that are fundamentally necessary for the edification of this body and for the calling of this body, the Great Commission. A church is only as unified as its members are involved in the gospel task. True unity is a church without spectators. Now, every church has spectators. And the reason I recognize spectators is I was a spectator for the longest. It takes one to know one. But is there unity with this attitude? I trust the direction of the church. I agree with the direction of the church. But I'm not going to be involved. I'm not going to use my gifts, my talents. I'm not going to sacrifice my time to benefit that direction. And so it's a unity of action. And then fourth, unity in the faith. Notice, for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is not something I exercise, my personal subjective faith. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It, this is the body of truth delivered to us in the 66 book canon that is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. In other words, it's not what I have, it's what has me. It's the message that Paul lived for, was willing to die for, indeed did die for. One of the issues that I had to address last week in Haiti at the pastor's conference is the missionaries were telling me that many of the pastors will let just anybody in the pulpit. If you're a friend of the pastor, you get privileged to the pulpit. And yet many of these people don't even know the gospel. And so a church that is not centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is one way to salvation, one way. 
And that way is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the mediator. You say, well, that sounds narrow-minded. All truth is narrow. You've never accused a mathematician of being narrow-minded. All truth is narrow. When I was in that plane flying through a tornado Monday night, I wanted my pilot to believe in absolute narrow truth. There's one way to land this plane. But there's only one in the history of the world that has taken the wrath of God and lived. That's why the gospel is narrow. And that's why this church stands on that gospel. Outside of Christ, outside of that gospel, you will be eternally judged in a place called hell. We are unified around the gospel. It's the only message that can save. It's the only message that can restore, renew, and resurrect. Whether your personal walk, your, your marriage, your family, or a church for that matter. It's the message that the world needs. And that's why unity, one of the reasons unity is so important in the local church. The church's mission and the world's hopes depend on it. Think about a church that's all divided and dealing, having to put out all these fires with people all upset about secondary and tertiary matters. You're so focused on putting out these fires, you can't focus on the Great Commission. And especially when that Great Commission is dangerous or difficult. And it's becoming more and more difficult in our culture. And I believe one day it will become dangerous in our culture. I believe that. But that's not doomsday. I think that's actually God's strategy. The church thrives in that environment. Certainly was there in Philippi. Notice in the words of verse 28, he says, I'm not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's hard for us to understand because we rarely get scared in this culture, because we're Christians. In that culture? Oh, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That will get you in trouble. And Paul says, I know. I know these are scary times. But you're a citizen of heaven. Your king has already emerged victorious. Paul would say, haven't you read Daniel 7, where these beasts that represent all the earthly kingdoms come out of the sea, and this one like the Son of Man subdues them and destroys them underneath his feet? That is your king. Can you imagine what this would mean to many people in the world today, many Christians who are in closed countries where it's illegal to preach the gospel? It means nothing to us because we live in Disney World. We're so enslaved to entertainment, we've gotten soft. In fact, Paul is saying to these believers, your gospel commitments in the face of danger is actually God's strategy. It serves as a sign. That brings us to the second point. Notice in verse 28b. He says, Christ is your life. Yes, when you are standing firm and striving for the sake of the gospel... But secondly, when your life is a sign for the sake of the gospel. Notice in verse 28, he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. 
And that from God, nothing's happening outside of the parameters of God's divine providence and sovereignty. In other words, your change in commitments, convictions, and character is a sign to the unbeliever. Your united stand in defense of the gospel, your capacity to stand meekly in the face of persecution is a sign of their destruction. It's a sign of their judgment because they don't have that capacity. They could never stand the way you're standing because they don't have the one spirit. But it's also a sign of your salvation. It's a, it's a sign of assurance that you're truly saved. That's one of the difficult things about America. So many people profess Christ. But what if persecution fell on the church where it became illegal to worship? How many of you would show back up for worship? Paul says, all who desire to be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I remember the first time I met what would be my future mentor, Al Jackson. And I asked him, I said, tell me about the health of your church. And I'll never forget his response. He said, I be- he said this is how I measure the health of our church. One of many measurements. He said, if persecution fell on America, I believe the majority of our people would continue to gather in worship. Come what may. The fact that we're willing to suffer for the gospel, even be chained and die for the gospel, is a sign that we're truly saved. That's what Paul is saying. The adversity that the Philippian believers were willing to experience for the sake of Christ was a confirming sign. And that's why suffering is necessary. I don't like suffering. You don't like suffering. We're not masochists. But it is necessary because it reveals true authenticity. Like fire reveals fool's goal and real goal. Suffering reveals what you really believe. Not what you confess and profess when all your I's are dotted in your life and all your T's are crossed. That brings us to the final point, verse 29 and 30. Christ is your life. If you suffer for the sake of the gospel. Again, what Paul is doing before he gets into correcting them, he's establishing what it means to say to live as Christ. Notice in verse 29, he says, It has been granted to you. That word granted is where we get the word grace. Do you think this way? This is a grace gift, he's saying. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. What is he referring to? He got beat to a pulp in Philippi. He was thrown into jail. And now here that I still have. He's now in a Roman prison having been falsely accused of polluting the temple with Gentiles. And on top of that, the Romans accused him of being this Egyptian which was on their top wanted list. 
most wanted list. And Paul speaks of two gifts here. Salvation and suffering. Faith and suffering. Do you know that if you believe today, it's not because you're just superior to those around you that don't? It's because you're an object of grace. You're a trophy of grace. It's all of grace. All of grace. It is by grace you have been saved, Paul says, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I cannot boast in my faith. My faith is a gift. Now, with every doctrine, there is tension. God's doctrines are so beautiful and glorious, every doctrine has tension. Not contradiction, but tension. My faith is a gift from God. I must exercise faith, but even my exercising of my faith is grounded by God's sovereign grace. It's all of grace. When I got saved on August the 29th, 1991, I didn't go planning to commit to Christ. Christ interrupted my sin-stained rebellion and gave me the gift of faith. He says that here. And true faith, saving faith increasingly shows itself as a life, notice, for the sake of Christ. For his sake. He says it twice here. That's the difference between some spurious faith that I would exercise apart from God's sovereign grace... And my faith that is a gift by God's sovereign grace. Because that's effectual. That faith is going to go public. It's going to reveal itself. And one of the ways it reveals itself is it increases. It becomes a, a faith that is willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. And in a world opposed, this will bring with it persecution and suffering. D.A. Carson, one of the great scholars of our time. Barry's sons are named after D.A. Carson. If salvation has been secured by the suffering of another on our behalf, our discipleship is to be demonstrated in our suffering on his behalf. It's pretty clear. But if that's true, here's the question. Does your life bear the marks of discipleship? It's a very convicting question. I've asked myself that question all week. Does my life bear the marks of discipleship? What is it costing you to follow Christ? Not in order to earn his favor, but because you have his favor. What is it costing you time-wise? What is it costing you financially to follow Christ? Maybe even with regard to your reputation at work and in your family. What is it costing you to follow Christ? In verse 30, Paul calls this suffering a conflict. The word is agon. Now, we want to be careful of word study fallacies. But that's where we get the word agony. And the Christian life is not an agony. But it is insightful to see that this word means it's agon. In fact, it's the word that's used in Hebrews 12. We read from Hebrews earlier where Paul says there's a race that's been set before us. The word there is agonai. 
for Paul, his agony involved beatings, floggings, stonings, shipwrecks, rejection, misrepresentation. Four times in this chapter alone, he has spoken of his imprisonment, his chains, and the possibility of death. Paul isn't speaking as a Monday morning quarterback. Now, contextually, it seems that their conflict here includes persecution. But get this. It also includes inner church turmoil. Where do you get that, Brian? Remember, chapter 2 was not chapter 2 when it was written. As soon as he's done with this verse, he's going to immediately transition to dealing with division in the church. Now, there's something comforting about that. So there's persecution, but there's another kind of suffering. And let me just say this. The kind of suffering you can avoid if you're churchless. There's a lot of people who profess Christ who are churchless because they are avoiding this kind of suffering. Trust me, if you join a church, you're going to avail yourself to certain kinds of suffering that churchless people don't experience. The sufferings of doing life together when we haven't been perfected yet. We're still very fleshly at times when the Spirit is not filling us. And that becomes downright painful, doesn't it? And your natural reaction is to run for the hills. I'll just watch my favorite preacher on the internet with my cup of coffee. But Paul says, suffering is a gift. It's been granted to you to suffer. I'm cutting myself off from a means of grace. I'm cutting myself off from God's strategy for me. Notice, it's been granted to you to suffer. And this text is here because we don't like to suffer. And the scripture is conforming us, sanctifying us. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. And the Father says, I will. I'll raise up apostles and give them the spirit. And by the apostolic word, I will sanctify my people. We don't like to suffer. And Paul says, it's been granted to you to suffer. Very interesting article this week in The Federalist. And for time's sake, I'll be brief. Written by a woman named Luma Sims. She's dealing with the epidemic of the opioid, painkiller epidemic in our culture. And here's what she says. Our prosperity has stunted our ability to forbear difficulties. Be they physical, spiritual, emotional, economic, or any other. And so often when we experience suffering in the imperfect world... Our knee-jerk response as a society is to look for relief. Some people just go look for another church. Guess what? You're going to suffer there too. Some of us turn to food. Others drink. And still others turn to myriad forms of entertainment. Our opulent society offers many ways to run away from our misery. Within our country's genetic makeup is the drive to make things better. In itself, that's a wonderful quality. And yet that same quality can be distorted, and in its corrupted form, 
It makes us impatient and unable to endure hardships. We are a society unpracticed in endurance. That's a good word. Paul says our willingness to suffer for Christ's sake so that our lives may serve as a sign. Our willingness to to stand firm and to strive for the sake of the gospel. That is the life worthy of the gospel. You know, Ichiro Suzuki, his life is one of suffering and focus. He's methodically eliminated everything from his life that isn't baseball. And his commitment to an idol, his commitment to a false God, puts most Christians' commitments to Christ to shame. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. You never get past the gospel. Even with that, even though it appears that even your pastor's commitments to Christ don't seem to rival Ichiro Suzuki's commitments to baseball, my status as a son of God doesn't change. My status as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ does not change. I remain forgiven. I remain righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because let's be honest, how many of you, verse 27, describes to a T? It doesn't, does it? But that's the glory of the gospel. It's covered at an infinite cost. And that should move us, melt us, excite us, inside us to increasingly strip away everything from our lives that is not Christ. Let's pray. Father of mercy, a mercy that comes to us in all sufficient abundant supply at the cost of your son. We thank you for this text. Thank you that your spirit inspired Paul to pen it. Because the way of life described here is not natural to us. But as we stand firm in this one Holy Spirit, it can increasingly become our way of life. Lives that comport with the glory of the gospel. Father, may that be our testimony at Fisherville. Oh, that we could increasingly say, to live is Christ. Would you do that for us for the sake of your son? Forgive us for not having the same kind of commitments that we see.